Welcome back to the Tuesday edition of Vermont Viewpoint. I'm Brad Wright. The issues involving gun rights, gun violence, how to interpret the Second Amendment, gun proliferation, and much more involving guns uh, have a long history in this country and certainly in Vermont. Uh, it, some of it, a lot of it, evokes a lot of emotion, anger, and fear. Uh, now, the Vermont Federation of Sportsmen's Clubs, the Powderhorn Outdoor Center, and Black Dog Shooting Supplies and two individuals have filed suit in federal court to block enforcement of two laws passed by the legislature. The first of which makes it a crime to keep and bear firearm magazines, limiting citizens to only 10 rounds for a rifle and 15 rounds for a pistol. The second makes it a crime to transfer any firearm without waiting at least 72 hours and possibly as long as seven business days. Uh, joining us to discuss the issue is one of the plaintiffs, Chris Bradley, who is the executive director of the Federation of Sportsmen's Clubs. Uh, Chris, welcome. Thank you, Brad. Pleasure to be on your show. Well, thank you. Now, I wanted to just start with a reading of the Second Amendment, um, which says, and I quote, a well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. Um, And I just want to add, Merriam-Webster's dictionary defines the word infringe as to encroach upon in a way that violates law or the rights of another. Um, Chris, what about the the legal uh, approach to all of this? Um, What what are your thoughts going in as uh, as the suit's been filed? The state hasn't really responded yet. uh, where do you think we are uh, with this with this as a uh, as a legal issue well let's uh, you, you touched upon something very critical. Uh, the second amendment to our constitution is the only amendment that used the phrase shall not be infringed. The Vermont legislature has passed laws that do more than just infringe on that right, and we 've had to take on this challenge to protect the unalienable rights of Vermont citizens. Um, the, so let's talk about the magazines first, um, the, and the capacity. Um, the law says, uh, it limits citizens to 10 rounds for a rifle and 15 rounds for a pistol. Um, are these, uh, not standard magazines that we're talking about here? Um, or, or is the state trying to push people back into, uh, if they have a firearm to use, uh, maybe the magazine that came with it when it was new? Well, uh, in the case of many firearms, uh, particularly firearms such as the AR-15, uh, 20-round magazines are standard. Um, 10-round magazines are not. Um, so what we're really looking at is, is a capacity for how many rounds you can have in a gun. Um, frankly, there's a, an equal protection issue because anybody that had one of these uh, magazines, large capacity magazine feeding devices, uh, prior to the law could keep them and they could still use them. Uh, in fact, they could go to a range. I could hand you a gun with one of these in there and it's completely legal. Um, so we're really there. It's arbitrary. Number one, uh, perhaps well-intentioned, but it's an arbitrary limit uh, imposed on honest and law-abiding gun owners. 
Let me ask you um, a little different question about the waiting period. Um, the so the 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 legislature passed a 72-hour waiting period, and it sounds like this was aimed to some degree at people who may be purchasing a weapon in order to uh, commit suicide if they don't already have one. Um, it, what's so bad about a 72-hour waiting period? Um, since they have, since uh, anyone purchasing a, uh, a weapon of any kind still has to pass the background check. Well, uh, you've hit a, an interesting point. Uh, the stated purpose of H-230, which uh, included the 72-hour waiting period, and, and let's just step back. Um, I sat throughout the health care committee's discussion. Uh, whether it was going to be 48 hours or 72 hours, there were really no definitive studies that said one was better than the other. So it, it, to a large degree, uh, when we when we talk about suicide, I'll be the first to admit I've lost a close friend and, a, and an uncle uh, to suicide by firearm. Um, it, it changed my perspective somewhat because in both cases, the gentleman involved uh, had terminal diseases. And that's something that we don't, understand or really have a handle on when we talk about suicides. Uh, you hit another interesting point. Um, uh, various estimates, uh, as high as 75%, but typically well above 50% of Vermont households have firearms in them. Um, if the intent of a waiting period is to stop someone who is in crisis and is going to go out to the store, uh, present themselves to a, uh, a gun owner, a FFL, uh, basically um, trick them because they don't want to show that they're in crisis, uh, buy the gun, go through the background check, go home, and, and then end their lives. Um, no doubt, huge tragedy. But the fact of the matter is there are approximately, uh, in recent years, about 44,000 firearms sold in Vermont every year. Um, only anecdotally do we understand within the last 10 years um, and again, I sat through the health care committee. There were only two documented cases, and I'm sure there are others, but two primary cases of someone doing what we just described, uh, deciding to end their lives, going to a store, buying a gun, going home and killing themselves. Um, clearly a tragedy. But that's one side of, of this fence. The other side is we, we live in a violent world these days. Um, in fact, a recent study just showed that uh, uh, Rutland and Burlington were six and seven uh, in, in terms of unsafe places during the holidays across the nation. So consider the situation of a woman uh, who is being stalked by a violent aggressor. Uh, she wants to live without fear. A waiting period stops that woman from purchasing what is arguably the best means of self-defense. And that's her unalienable right. What are we telling that woman? And by the way, uh, the largest demographic of new firearms owners are, in fact, women. What are we telling women? Uh, go hide for three days if some miscreant is, is wishing you bodily harm? <laughs> we already know that uh, bad people can get guns. They don't, they don't have to worry about background checks or waiting periods. Um, they can get them through straw purchases. They can steal them. Um, in fact, uh, a couple of youths up in Burlington were... Uh, caught stealing a firearm, and then two weeks later, one of them shot another one of his buddies with a stolen firearm taken out of a car. Hmm. So it, it's it, it's a, you 
touched upon it very early. Uh, it's an ex- incredibly emotional issue, Brad. And for many people, perhaps like me, uh, in, in how we address fear is, hey, I was a Boy Scout. Um, it was called Be Prepared. Uh, I don't go around you know, with a gun on my hip or anything like that, but I am trained and prepared to certainly defend my own life, the life of my family, and my property from people who would wish nothing more than to do me harm. Hmm. Uh, Chris, we have uh, another Chris uh, on the line, who uh, Chris from Waterbury, who has a question. Uh, Chris, uh, what is your question for Chris Bradley? Um, maybe it, uh, it's a kind of a couple of questions. But number one, uh, I'd like to know why the state doesn't do test trial um, on these gun rules. Uh, they keep chiseling away at our at our gun rights, uh, and there's no sunset uh, uh, rule on any of these new laws that they put in. Because I'd be curious to know over a period of a you know four or five year period on on new law implementation implementation is if, does it really change things, or are we continuing to get worse? Number two, um, as they do continue to chisel away at good law-abiding uh, gun owners' rules and rights, at, one, at what point do the good law-abiding gun owners become criminals? And if, if their thought process is to continue to chisel away at good uh, gun owners' rights, uh, to eliminate crime, uh, I don't believe that's ever going to happen because the criminals are never going to give up their weapons. I appreciate you taking my call, and I'll listen. Thanks. Chris, what do you think? Well, first, uh, in in answering his first question, um, I don't believe there's been any law that has materially changed the aspect, excuse me, uh, sorry about that, um, has changed uh, crime. In fact, Vermont used to be, in the top three safest states in the, in the country in terms of both violent crime and property crime. Uh, we have now slid uh, to fourth in violent crime and eighth in property crime across the country. I haven't seen any of these laws that have made any material difference to violent crime. In fact, we seem to see more crime happening. So uh, they're attempting to throw darts at a dartboard to say, let's see if this stops that activity. Uh, frankly, I, I'm going to go right. Uh, I just did a, some digging into court statistics, and believe it or not, in Chittenden County, our largest county, um, there were no crimes apparently committed, no felony crimes where a gun was involved because there were no prosecutions for that crime, which is unbelievable to me. Um, as far as uh, honest, law-abiding citizens, I had a little story there. Uh, in, in Connecticut, after Newtown, they passed the uh, an assault weapons ban. Uh, you could, uh, um, if you registered what you had, you could keep it. Um, and as of January, uh, January 1st, 2014, I believe there was approximately 50,000 uh, people in Connecticut that had gone through that registration process. Uh, that clearly we don't know how many guns are in Connecticut. There is no registry. Uh, so the NSSF was stepped in and said, well, how many guns do we think are in Connecticut? Um, they looked at uh, background check data. They looked at uh, manufacturer's data. Uh, and they decided that there was at least 350,000 of these, quote, unquote, modern sporting rifles in Connecticut. But only 50,000 of, of the owners of those registered them. 
So one in seven said, okay, I'll register this. Six said, no, the government doesn't need to know that I own this. And by the way, every one of those people went through a background check. So in Connecticut, they created a whole new class of people, people who were honest, law-abiding citizens, could pass a background check all day, but when it came time to giving up their gun, they said no. New York, it was even worse. In the New York Safe Act, they estimated that over a million New Yorkers said, no, not going to do it. So two states, 1.3 million people, honest, law-abiding citizens, pass a background check. They're now felons because they didn't want to say, I owned one of these. Now, are are we seeing large amounts of crime in Connecticut with assault weapons or, or, excuse me, modern sporting rifles? No. They they account for an exceptionally small percentage, less than 1% of of all violent crime. I mean, if you're really going to go after... Uh, uh, um, firearms that are causing mayhem, that's pistols. But yet pistols are the greatest implement of of self-defense that is out there. And multiple studies have shown that defensive uses of firearms, even just having the gun and not using it, just showing it, uh, far outseeds the offenses or illegal uses of guns. Uh, Chris Bradley of the Vermont Federation of uh, Sportsmen's Clubs is our guest. I wanted to get back to the uh, magazine issue, uh, magazine capacity issue for just a second. Um, If the law is upheld and this uh, 10 rounds for a rifle, 15 rounds for a pistol um, uh, rule is upheld, is there anything that says you can just get more magazines and put the ten, and put the ten rounds in? Oh, most well, certainly. I mean, there's there's no law that says you can't have ten or fifteen or twenty ten round magazines strapped to yourself or on your person. Uh, so there there is no uh, um, there is no law that would uh, prevent that. No. Okay. So that's is that a fairly easy uh, workaround? No, I. I, I I don't believe it is. Um, the fact of the matter is when, when criminal, criminals can pick the time and place when you are going to be attacked or violated, um, it, it will be a, uh, a very troubling time. You're, obviously, you're going to be surprised. There may be multiple people coming at you. Um, uh, frankly, uh, the, it's an arbitrary limit to, to say, oh, you, we're only going to have 10 rounds here but we'll give you an extra magazine. Well, if you're going to give me an extra magazine or an extra 10 magazines, why can't I have just one magazine? Um, let's, let's be clear. For years and years and years, the Second Amendment has been treated differently than all other rights, with legislators and inferior courts determining for themselves what an infringement is. The Supreme Court decisions that culminated in Bruin, and by the way, it... It started in 2008, D.C. v. Heller. And I want to make it clear that that was not a conservative court at that point. That was a more liberal-leaning court. And when they looked at D.C. v. Heller, the Heller, uh, what was being contested there was the ability to have an uh, operable firearm in your home. Um, the Supreme Court upheld that said, yes, you could do that. And the D.C. law that said you couldn't, it had to be unloaded and disassembled, was wrong. So... We started with Heller, then there was McDonald, then there was Catano, and finally uh, last year was Bruin. And with Bruin, the Supreme Court has finally provided clear guidance that the Second Amendment is no longer 
a second-class right, which is the way it's been treated. And it will not be treated that way anymore. It is a co-equal right to the First Amendment and all other amendments. And as an example, uh, gee, Brad, you, you work in the uh, media. Um, uh, let's pass a law that says you can say anything you want, but you have to wait three days to do it. <laughs> well, that's pretty well, good. Well, but Brad, there's a good reason. You know, we, we don't we want you to consider what you're going to say carefully. Don't want anybody offended. Don't want anybody hurt. So three days. I, it won't work. All right, uh, Chris, let, let, let's uh, take a little dit- different tack. Um, uh, so apart from the legal argument, have you considered the societal piece, meaning that even though you may not like any government-enforced restrictions on gun use, uh, that even the gun-owning public could be safer with this law in place than if it is struck down? Well, then we should see some uh, definite uh Results from this, uh, as we have since uh, uh, 2018, when we, we started seeing these laws getting passed in Vermont. Um, interestingly enough, one of the, the the core of Vermont has always been we're constitutional carry. You, you don't need a permit to carry, either concealed or openly. And I now believe that over half the country has adopted what our standard has always been. So I, I guess I look at it and I say, what? What is, what, what does make, or what did make Vermont so safe? And quite frankly, um, I think Robert Heinlein uh, in New Horizons said, an armed society is a polite society. Manners are good when you may pay for your acts with your life. Now, that may sound a little bit trite, but frankly, um, I believe that the fact that people in Vermont uh, may be concealed carrying uh, as they go about their day, um, actually drives safety, and it drives safer communities. You don't see – we're not the Wild West here. Um, we're not seeing – except for the drug problems that are now inundating Rutland, which we're not properly prosecuting, um, and even worse in Chittenden County. So uh, it, it's an emotional issue. It really is, uh, Brad, and uh, I think there's uh, – it's not going to go away easily. But the fact of the matter is it's an unalienable right pre-existing our amendments, that you have a right to defend yourself. Uh, Chris, we have a couple of uh, listener uh, questions coming in in the few minutes, just a couple of minutes that we have left. Uh, Forbes, very quickly, what's your question? You are from East Corinth. Right. Thank you. Um, with regards to the red flag uh, legislation, uh, what's, what are the ramifications of that and uh, what if uh, it became a disgruntled uh, partner uh, falsely accusing somebody? What's the, what's the procedure there for regress? Well, there is uh, a perjury uh, if, in fact, you uh, make a false statement. And, and we know in, in nasty divorce cases uh, that th- these things can come up. Oh, he has a gun and he threatened me with it um, to perhaps steer uh, a jury. I think my primary problem, look, when, when the extremist protection order a law came out, uh, the Federation was actually in support because we all agreed there were people that should not have guns and we needed, all we had to do is wrap a process around it to make sure that rights were followed. Uh, unfortunately, uh, under current Vermont law, there's this thing called due process that you can't take somebody's property unless they have a day in court. 
um, and uh, to take somebody's firearms even temporarily uh, on the off chance that, that something bad may or may not happen um, is, is unconstitutional. Uh, if you can give a, a person who is in jeopardy a, a, a day in court uh, on a Saturday night, then you can give that gun owner the same privilege, uh, the same right to be heard. So uh, I think due process is, a, is critical, and, and uh, we are not actually following it currently with either domestic violence or extremist protection orders. Uh, Chris, uh, we do have uh, one of, if you can just wrap this up in about 30 seconds or so, uh, we have Judy from Williamstown. Judy, what's your question? Um, yes, my my concern is not the the problem, but what has created this problem. I feel is the violent movies and television programs and games that we've taught our young people to play to to kill and not feel any remorse. I feel that if if they could uh, um, address that situation, I think that the problem would go away. But we've cre- created a, a, a monster. Chris, uh, just very quickly, uh, if you can answer that one. Exceptionally good points, and, and I couldn't agree more. I think we have a society in, in, in terrible jeopardy, and there's a lot of things that are contributing to it, including drugs and, and violence that we're seeing daily. Chris, uh, I do want to just very quickly ask you uh, uh, the um, the mass shootings. I mean, obviously, you know, this is what people think of when they think of uh, gun problems. Um, is is a uh, a, a mass shooting, does it do give you any any second thoughts about this, just in the 10 seconds? Um, no, because almost every one of them uh, relate to mental health that should have been seen. Lewis, Lewiston was in a poster child for that. Uh, yeah, uh, that's a very good point. Um, uh, uh, police uh, follow through. Um, not such a great thing uh, in Maine uh, on that uh, in that incident, that series of incidents. But it was um, nevertheless uh, a, a very difficult thing. Chris, thank you very much for joining us. Uh, this is Vermont Viewpoint on WDEV. Welcome back to the second hour of Vermont Viewpoint. I'm your host, Brad Wright. Uh, it was just over a week ago that we had enough rain to create some flooding in several places around the state. We began the program this morning with uh, some specific information about what happened in Lamoille County. Um, this this weather, not really welcome after the flooding we had in July, which was very destructive, damaging homes and businesses, and some still have not fully recovered. Uh, it hasn't been easy, and the feeling that there's more coming uh, is hard to escape. Our next guest is uh, WCAX-TV's meteorologist, Gary Sadowski, who many of us see often for a weather forecast. Gary, welcome. Hi there, Brad. How are you? Oh, very well. Thank you. I hope you had a great holiday. I did indeed, and I hope you did too. Oh, thank you very much. Um, Gary, I'm, I'm pretty sure there are some folks in our area who wouldn't mind seeing a drought for a while. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know, we actually had a drought uh, not so much last uh, summer, but the summer before. We had several months in a row 
of dry to moderate drought conditions, and everybody was concerned about that. But, yeah, we kind of switched things around and uh, turned it the other way, unfortunately. Yeah, um, and, and it did seem like um, it was a, a really dramatic turnaround because – you know, you sort of expect a little bit more more moderation because that's kind of the way things, you know, have generally been uh, in terms of the weather turning from 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 one extreme to the other. But but, uh, boy, um, uh, I guess you know, it all comes down to science in meteorology. Of course. What does the science and your own experience, gut instinct, tell you about what's coming next? Well, we uh, always look at the weather patterns and uh, not just uh, close to us, although, you know, my job is to focus on local weather and what it's going to be doing to Vermont, northern New York, New Hampshire, southern Quebec. And uh, But you expand it out a little bit more and you look nationally, you look internationally, and you look up for the weather patterns. Uh, just to see what's going to be coming at us. And, of course, we uh, have a lot of resources available to us. One is the Climate Prediction Center, <clears throat> and they put out uh, a lot of long-term outlooks. Uh, every month they have a 30-day outlook and a 90-day outlook. So the most recent 30-day outlook is for the month of January. And the way they usually uh, do it is kind of graphically they show a map of the United States, the lower 48 anyway, and uh, two of them, one for temperature, one for precipitation. So for the month of January coming up, it looks like here in the Northeast, we are looking at above normal temperatures again. Precipitation-wise, we're looking at normal precipitation. So you kind of take that all with a grain of salt because sometimes things change very quickly and those long-range outlooks don't always pan out, but that's what we look at. And then also the 90-day one for the months of January, February, March, guess what? All above average temperatures and uh, as far as precipitation here in the Northeast, uh, looking pretty normal. It looks like the wettest part of the United States is going to be down in the Southeast and Florida. So, that's the one area that's going to be uh, quite a bit wetter than normal. Temperature-wise, uh, you know, you look across the country and look for anything that's going to be below normal, not one single spot. Everything is always pointing to above normal temperatures, and we have seen that trend for a long time now. Our guest is WCAX-TV's meteorologist, Gary Sadowski. If you have a question for Gary, please feel free to give us a call at 802-244-1777. That's 244-1777 to ask a weather-related question of Gary Sadowski. Um, Gary... A lot of the, the you mentioned the um, uh, 30 day and 90 day outlooks, um, all of which show something warmer um, than is typical. Um, how closely do you think the farmers' almanac um, uh, tracks with this? Since I believe the farmers' almanac also um, uh, predicted something a little warmer this winter. 
Yes, and we get that question a lot. In fact, there's the Farmer's Almanac. There's the old Farmer's Almanac. So there are a couple of publications out there that try to put out long-range outlooks. And uh, they do a little bit of science in there, but uh, mainly what they're focusing on is past experiences and, you know, just kind of general outlooks for various areas. So, you know, there is a little bit less science put into those, but uh, more in the way of, you know, uh, I think the old Farmer's Almanac has been around for well over 100 years, so they uh, have a pretty good idea of what the climate has been like and what which direction it's going in. So they put out uh, sometimes forecasts that are good and sometimes not so great. So uh, I don't know if that's a very good answer, but uh, I, I actually, maybe you know, I haven't actually checked what the Almanac is predicting for this winter. Uh, I uh, haven't. Uh, I don't have it next to me. Uh, I can't read it. Uh, but um, yes. but I think I it's. Think, it, I think it was going for uh, wetter than normal and a little warmer than normal. Yeah, I, I yeah. recall. And what that usually means for us is when you say warmer and wetter, well, that means more rain and less snow. And guess what? So far, it's been doing just that. Yeah, yeah. Um, I understand that one of the more perplexing aspects of the last storm was the impact of snow melt on the amount of water that was coursing through the state rivers and streams and so forth. Um, we had a pretty good amount of snow for early uh, for the early part of the winter. Um, why is it uh, difficult? Is it is it just because of the amount of snow can vary so much? Uh, indeed, yeah. You know, and those snowfalls that we got were very kind of strange too. You know, and actually we had this pattern going of storms every Sunday night and Monday for four weeks in a row. It was kind of bizarre. And what was happening is the valleys were getting mainly rain with a little bit of snow, but the mountains were getting pretty well hit. You saw that uh, with as much as a foot and a half, two feet or more of snow in some of the higher elevations. And uh, that led to a lot of power outages just week after week. Those poor folks have been working way too hard trying to get the power restored. And uh, right now we're doing pretty good. But, uh, you know, all that snow up in the mountains kind of stuck around for a while. But when you have a pattern like that where it's rain in the valley, snow in the mountains like that, it was not fluffy snow. It was the heavy, wet snow. So it's just sitting there waiting to melt. And along come these warmer temperatures and another round of rain. And usually what happens with a snowpack, when you do get the occasional rainstorm this time of the year, the snow actually kind of acts like a sponge and absorbs a lot of that rain. But this time around, nope, that didn't work. All it did was melt the already uh, pretty wet snowpack, and that just added to the problems that we had with this last storm. Plus, uh, we've been talking about storms that are... Uh, you know, the, the catchword lately is overperform or underperform, and this one overperformed. You know, we saw what we thought was going to be between an inch and a half, two and a half inches of rain, and it ended up being a little bit more than that. 
the storm track took it a little closer to us than we originally anticipated, and that's because this is one of those coastal storms that can kind of wobble one way or the other. So it wobbled in a little closer, and we got more than we expected. It was a little warmer, and boom, bottom line, a lot of water going into those rivers and streams, and you saw what happened. Yeah, I mean, it's too bad because uh, the skiing was pretty good in uh, uh, yeah. the earlier part of uh, December. and uh, right. Um, you know the ski areas, uh, the larger ones are of course still open, but uh, but it's not quite quite what it was. Right, um, all that heavy snow really. They, they've been talking about this being one of the best starts to the ski season that we've had in years. Uh, so for like the Thanksgiving holiday weekend, that's a big ski weekend that worked out pretty well. But also the Christmas weekend, the New Year's weekend are big ones. And look what's happening. It's kind of gone in the other direction. Yeah. Um, how much does the Pacific Ocean uh, have to do with the weather that we get here? We have La Nina. We have El Nino. It's a little confusing to me because I can remember and never remember which is which is which causes which weather effects. Um, but uh, uh, can you explain that for us? Uh, well, yeah, there's that pattern that uh, that's the most famous uh, global circulation that we hear a lot of because here we are way down in the South Pacific Ocean, and what happens down there can affect the weather around the world. Uh, right now we're in El Nino, and it's a strong El Nino, and it looks like it's going to be around for the rest of the winter. What that means is the water in the South Pacific is warmer than normal. And that warm air over the South Pacific kind of uh, jerks the jet stream one way or the other, and that changes the weather patterns around the world. Now, for us, there's not too much of a difference in our weather pattern up here in the northeastern U.S. The West Coast, yes, uh, they look for wetter than normal weather, and that's exactly what's been happening. They've been getting flooding rains this thing called an atmospheric river where the jet stream sets up and just transports a whole lot of moisture from the South Atlantic or uh, Pacific and upwards right towards the west coast of the U.S. So they've been getting hammered, the, the, the uh, northwest, uh, southern California just a few days ago got hammered with some flooding rains, and that's just kind of a pattern that's been holding for the last couple of uh, weeks or more. And up here in the Northeast, well, usually a little bit warmer than normal, which we have been seeing, but uh, doesn't affect our precipitation too much here in the Northeast. We're more uh, under the influence of another weather pattern that's out in the North Atlantic called the North Atlantic Oscillation, the NAO. And that goes through a couple of different phases, too, either the positive phase or the negative phase. And right now it's kind of in a positive phase. And that can last a few weeks or a few months. Uh, it, it looks like it's going to stay positive for the next couple of months. And generally it, it has more to do with temperature here in the Northeast. And uh, when it's positive, we usually get warmer than average temperatures. And guess what? Here we are. Here we are. So, yeah. Uh, there, there are a lot of different uh, factors that go into what's going to happen with the weather uh, up here in the Northeast. 
And we're, you know, between the El Nino with a little warmer than average temperatures and the positive NAO, well, that's exactly what we're getting. But that also means that when we get precipitation, instead of good old-fashioned winter snow, we're getting winter rain. Yeah, we 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 sure are. Uh, WCAX TV's meteorologist Gary Sadowski is our guest. We're talking about weather in the Northeast and the rest of the country. Um, you were talking about um, the North Atlantic Oscillation. Um, what would happen uh, in in the in that phenomenon to make things a little colder? Uh, they would have to uh, transition into what we call the negative phase of that, and that uh, tweaks the jet stream a little bit. Here in the Northeast, it would take more of a dip, and that would bring in colder temperatures. Therefore, if we ever get a system that brings wet weather, it'll fall more in the way of snow rather than rain. So that would be kind of a good thing. But right now, it's in that positive phase, and it looks like it's going to stay there at least the next two weeks. So we're looking at these warm conditions really continuing through uh, at least the first half of January. Yeah. Uh, according to the uh, – uh, there was a great article in um, uh, VT Digger uh, the other day um, uh, about uh, about this weather phenomenon we're experiencing now. Um, the National Weather Service, uh, the article said, uh, indicated there have been six weather events featuring heavy, wet snow since about this time last year. And uh, they said it had been uh, a long time since there were more than two. Uh, does that surprise you at all? Uh, no, it really doesn't. Uh, you know, that's kind of the pattern that we have been seeing in recent years is uh, the extremes. You know, uh, obviously we have had our share of huge snowstorms over the years. Uh, but, yeah, you get one or two or maybe three in a season, and now we're seeing even more than that, either snow or rain events and that kind of thing. So it just seems like these uh, extremes have been taking place much more, extreme events. And uh, that's just kind of an indication of how things have been going recently. We were looking at uh, also, you know, here we are coming to the end of the year. We're coming to the end of the month of December. And we've been kind of keeping track of temperatures and precipitation right now. Temperature-wise, here uh, in Vermont, and, and that goes with the um, the Burlington National Weather Service office. That's where they keep the records. So we go with the Burlington numbers, but we're in second place right now, second warmest December on record, and we're going to track that and see where we end up, although it would take some real warm temperatures to get us into first place. First place was in 2015, and uh, we're also right now the fourth wettest December, and we've got rain on the way. It looks like that's going to push us up that top 10 list to the second wettest December. So right now we're looking at the second warmest, second wettest December on record, and the records go back to like 1883. And for yearly uh numbers, too, we're looking at possibly the warmest year that we have had. Right now we're, we are in first place, but we may sink down a little bit just because the uh, temperatures are going to come down a little bit for the last couple of days of the year over the weekend. And we're the seventh wettest uh, year on record right now, and that looks like we're going to work our way up a little bit with the rain coming. So, yeah, 
all sorts of records just keep falling, and that's been a recent trend. You take a look at some of these numbers and the top ten lists, and you know a lot of just the last few years are in those top ten lists. Climate change is what seems to come to mind when we have these discussions. Do you ascribe this phenomenon that we're experiencing now as as uh, climate change related, or could it just be you know the way things work out? Yeah, and that's a real, real tough question, you know. And but the way it has been going, and you know, you have to take a look at long term records and take a look at the graphs and how. The uh, temperatures just keep going up and up and up, and uh, it just keeps going that way. So it it is based on science. Uh, If you pump a lot of carbon into the atmosphere, that holds in the heat. And guess what? We are warming up, and uh, I don't think there's any question about it anymore. You know, it's kind of a slow transition to that way of thinking, but... uh, yeah, you, you know, you can't attribute any one particular storm. You know, you can't have a, a big, like the big rainstorm in the middle of July and say, oh, it's because of global warming. But when you get a whole bunch of them and they're more frequent and, you know, you take a look at the long-term patterns, then you have to go, yep, yeah, that's what's going on. All right. Uh, Gary, with uh, climate change becoming um, such an important factor in all of our lives, it occurred to me that uh, some some people may want to know more and perhaps make a career out of meteorology and being able to identify and predict some of this stuff. Can you talk about what it's been in the last minute or, co- minute or so that we have left? Can you talk a little bit about uh, what the academic requirements are to pursue a degree in meteorology? Yeah, uh, this kind of scares a lot of students because we get, uh, you know, a lot of people that come and ask us about what it takes to become a meteorologist. And the bottom line is a lot of math, a lot of science. You have to go through, uh, you know, advanced calculus courses and physics courses. Meteorology is actually applied physics. So those are the courses that you really have to uh, do well in, and that kind of scares off a lot of people because, uh, ooh, I'm not very good at math. But uh, if you put your mind to it and peck away at it, you know, as you're uh, learning, just kind of it's like training for a marathon. You can't just go out and run a marathon. You have to train every day, a little bit, every more, all the time. And that's what you do with these math and physics courses. And uh, you do have to get a degree in meteorology. It's a Bachelor of Science, and then you can go ahead and go further with that and uh, get your master's, get your doctorate. But uh, that's what it takes. I went to Linden State College, which now, of course, is uh, Vermont State University. And uh, they had a fantastic program there and still do. Did you find it uh, challenging, more challenging than you expected? Uh, taking the courses, yes. I, I, too, was not real good at math, so it took all my concentration to uh, get through some of those courses, for sure. Did you think that um, it was uh, uh, not doable at any point? 
Uh, there were a couple times when I said, oh, boy, I'm not going to get through this, but uh, just kind of hunkered down. And, uh, you know, a lot of the students were in the same boat, so we all kind of, you know, bolstered each other and uh, got to the end of it and made it. All right. Gary Sadowski of WCAX-TV has been our guest. Uh, this is Vermont Viewpoint on WDEV. We thank you very much for joining us today and have a wonderful rest of your holiday week.